0: Shauna, have you been following the local elections that happened on November 2nd, I think?
1: Well, I definitely was watching Boston and I was in New York while that election was going on. So, yeah, I've been watching quite
0: a bit. But, um, yeah, we had a lot of uh, historic elections, to say the least. Right. Yes, we did. Boston in particular with the first woman and the first woman of color to be the mayor of that city. So that's pretty Mm -hmm. exciting. And then, of course, we have an African-American man elected mayor in New York. But I was looking at the Virginia governor race and I've been reading a number of things um, that have come out since then. You know, the deconstruction that happens after every election and a number Mm -hmm. of issues have risen to the top related to race and how the Democrats or the Republicans used race or fear of talking about race um as a means or a vehicle to win the election and so it just got me thinking um or rethinking because I've certainly had this thought before why is it so difficult for people predominantly white people in this country to talk about race and I thought maybe you and I could give 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 it a go to answer that question
1: Look, I would love to pick on my home state of Virginia in this podcast, okay? So we can certainly go there with that. But yeah, it's a great topic. I have no answers, but yeah, Virginia is known for not talking about race well. So let's talk about it. I'm Dr.
0: Shauna Payne-Gold, and I go by she, her, her pronouns. And I'm Dr. Lisa Ingafield, and I go by she, her, hers. Welcome to Unfazed, a
1: podcast to disrupt your normal and challenge your brain to go the distance. So, Lisa, most people who know me know I'm originally from Southern Virginia. I live currently now in Maryland, so whenever you say Virginia to people here in the DMV area, they, it's it's relative, if you will. They automatically assume you live in the Northern Virginia area. But anytime you look at politics, race in particular, yeah, the, it, it's almost like two different states, Northern Virginia and Southern Virginia, when it comes to politics and where people's stances lie. And so, you know, when it comes to elections uh, in Virginia, there is a four-year term, only one term uh, gubernatorial terms there. Um, but yeah, race has always been a major challenge in Virginia. 1619, um, all of those um, historical references come from my home state, and yeah, it's. I'm not surprised. Let me just say that I'm not surprised it was used as a um, as a, a split between many people families friends even uh within uh, within the particular um campaigns it it was used as a complete weapon and but i think that's not uncommon uh they use it in politics but i think that happens in lots of other uh areas venues Mm -hmm. industries It, it happens all the time
0: yeah and i find that racial fear is um stoked um what's the word I'm looking for? Like not directly, right? So public education, for example, became the big hot issue in Virginia with Young King and um, parents having control over what their kids are taught in schools vis-a-vis the other candidate who felt like that was a racial dog whistle and said so explicitly. So it's very interesting how we approach it, either um, expressly naming it uh, or not naming it at all, but absolutely meaning it. And it seems like it's this peculiar experience of the United States. And so I've always found it fascinating to think about how my experience growing up in the UK and then coming here has um, both distanced me from racism in the US, um, but also gives me a little bit of, Distant, so distance in a negative way, but distance in a good way, right? Like i can mm-hmm. I'm not as emotionally invested in it so I can call things out, I think, more easily. Yes. But then I can also distance myself from the harms of racism because I didn't grow up here.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And and for me growing up in a little town, Alta Vista, Virginia, down in, in Campbell County, I remember you know, we did talk about race and I'm not saying that, you know, people gave academic lectures on race, but it was part of the culture of everything when it came to my hometown. So uh, my grandparents lived in a very small house that was right across the street from the elementary school that I went to, that my mother went to. That school named Mosley Heights was named after an African-American that established that community for African-Americans. And at the What we call the hill, if you will, Mosley Heights at the top of that hill there are a number of small churches in the area. But at the top of that hill, there is a gentleman, Mr. Leonard Coleman, may you rest in peace, um, who was known as a real estate developer for African-Americans in the area. And so what we call the horseshoe was actual, it was shaped, the street was shaped as a horseshoe, it was almost like an incomplete circle, where African Americans could buy their own homes and own their own homes, because we knew that literally across the tracks or in other communities, that wasn't possible. And so, you know, race was part of the entire experience. Um, I think I more fully understood race as a child, Um, as my mom used to talk about, oh, well, I used to go to this school, but then I had to go, I had to move to go to another school. And as a kid, I'm thinking, well, granny and pop didn't move their residence. So why did you have to move schools? And that's because segregation uh, was ending with my mother's class. And so she had gone to Campbell County High School, which was an all African-American high school up until 11th grade. And so 12th grade, her senior year, she integrated Alta Vista High School, which was a white high school, and eventually the high school that I graduated from. So I knew that something was up when it came to why are we keeping people separate based on race and hearing uh, kind of nuances where your folks didn't want to keep you from knowing the nuances of race, but also had to protect you as well because you're still a kid. so, for example, my mother worked at a bank for 46 years. That bank was positioned on Main Street of my little hometown. And my grandparents were the janitors for that bank. They cleaned that bank every evening and, and on the weekends, the deep clean. And I used to go with them sometimes. I'd read a book or bring my homework or what have you and just kind of hang out with them in the bank. Well, that bank had an entire wall of windows. And so I remember very distinctly one weekend where my grandparents closed the blinds and said, don't look out of these windows. I did not know that there was a KKK rally going down the main street of my hometown until many years later. And I always wondered why they closed the curtains on that weekend. Well, they didn't tell me that until I was an adult, what was really going on. So yeah, the race has always been ingrained in conversations and I don't consider myself that old. I'm 43 y'all, but it was still, an everyday conversation of what you can do, what you can't do, where you should be, where you shouldn't be. All of that has been common. I don't know if it was that way for you, Lisa, but it certainly was for me in Virginia um, as as a kid and growing up, for sure.
0: Yeah, I think that it obviously wasn't anything like that. I mean, growing up in the UK, racial politics are very different, and I, I feel actually woefully uneducated, um, in part because as a white person growing up, race was never discussed, right? Um, Primarily, the folks of color in my school or people I encountered were From originally all their families were from India or Pakistan, and so it's a different uh, region of the world, certainly, and then obviously we've got the UK or Britain's um, colonial impact on India in particular. And so I didn't know any of that right Um, there was definitely a significant amount of vitriol towards uh, Indian British people Pakistani British people. In the United Kingdom when I was growing up, I mean, a lot of violence and some of that erupted at uh, soccer games like um, the Premier League and things like that. There was a lot of violence there. So I had some kind of peripheral awareness of it, um, but I didn't ever talk about it with my parents. Um, It never came up, the fact that I was white and that bestowed some benefits on me. And I don't know if that's, well, that's in part because white people don't talk about race, but also like, I imagine that my parents were kind of oblivious to it, right? Because in the UK, especially when I was growing up, class was much more um, relevant in terms of one's identity, you know, and I remember learning that the US was like a classless society, which... (laughs) clearly it's not. Um, but the ways in which kind of, um, hierarchies existed in the UK class was the predominant and maybe that was predominant because that was directed by white people in power, right? Like, so as a, as a point to avoid talking about racial hierarchies, I mean, that piece, I don't know, but it's likely, I suppose. So, yeah, I do remember having one conversation around the dinner table with my dad. Um, I can't remember how old I was, but I can't have been that old, somewhere probably between 10 and 14. And he made some reference to colored people was the term that he used. And I just like flipped out at him and was like, what are you using that term for? They're not yellow or green. In my like immaturity of not really understanding racial politics, racial dynamics, anything like that, right? I just, was yeah. like the way he used the term I was just like, "That's," I just knew that wasn't right. Um, yeah but wasn't able to do anything about it. So, you know, Mm -hmm. I think our lives growing up, obviously my whiteness definitely shifted. um, Mm -hmm. When I came here and, you know, race is front and center in the U S but it's also not, that's the, that's the piece I don't understand. It's everywhere and it's nowhere. Right. Mm -hmm.
1: Yes, indeed. Yes. And it's everywhere, everywhere. And well, you know, and that's what makes it so interesting to me that, you know i i truly feel like sometimes race is a language that marginalized systemically excluded people are extremely well versed in and white people are not well versed in that language at all and that's why they yep. kind of trip yep. over it and yep. and you know lisa the the funniest thing <laughs> when i was teaching at an institution and we were specifically talking about race in my class And I had a white male lean over to me and whisper, not even using just a regular voice, whisper, Should I say black or should I say African American? Mm. And to me, I was like, That is so emblematic because I don't know about most people, but in my experience, I have rarely, if ever, stumbled across a black person who had a hard time saying white people, white folks, white person, white man, white girl, white boy. I, I have never run across individuals in my community, in the African-American community, that that had a hard time talking about, frankly, the oppressor, the oppressive group, whereas they seem to have a hard time talking about us, and I think that's so interesting, and I wonder, you know, where that started even, because, you know, we know race is extremely nuanced in this country, but It had to have started, you know, back in colonial days when we were still trying to deal with, uh, you know, everything, the the plundering of Native American populations. I think it it predates Black people um, in this country in particular, but it's just a nuanced conversation. So I'm always struck by who's comfortable conversing about these topics and who isn't. You know, by now I would think we would all be, but clearly we aren't
0: yeah and i think about uh, you know this whole public public education debate around critical race theory mm-hmm. and all the kind of erroneous information that's out there but this this example you shared of the guy in your class like if he had received comprehensive and effective education about you know the united states history of racial <laughs> violence and yes. white supremacy and how that might be embedded yes. in systems and had talked openly and honestly about it as a child then he wouldn't ne- that would never have happened right because it feels like white children in particular, it's drummed into them to ignore race. Like you can't see race. To Mm -hmm. see race is to be discriminatory. Therefore, to even use the term Black or African American is by extension racist, right? Mm -hmm. So, and Mm -hmm. I think that that's- So that's the wrong message. And so then you have parents worrying that if you talk about race in class and talk about racism, you're teaching young white people to think that they're monsters. And I just don't, I don't know how you get from A to B. I don't know how you get there from having an honest conversation about the foundations of this country and the ways in which those, that racism is now kind of embedded in systems. And that has profound Mm. effects today for people of color. I don't know how you get from that, the truth of that to my five year old's gonna think they're a monster. I, I don't get that intellectually.
1: Well, look, there, there's a there's a saying, <laughs> there's a, a country saying down in the south where my where I grew up and where my parents still live to this day that usually refers to the phrase of a hit dog will holler. Meaning that if you are hurt or feeling guilty or some type of self flagellation about something, then you will make us think about it. And I think in this country, I think in this country, the folks that have the hardest time even wanting to talk about race, it feels as if it's let's let's um, mask or make sure that we completely hide what has happened in this country. And let's just talk about the good stuff we're not necessarily saying that race doesn't exist, but let's not talk about the bad stuff that comes along with race. And that is inherently problematic. And so to me, it's like, are you as a white race saying that you feel guilty for what you did to certain groups and therefore you wish not to talk about it at all? Because that's where I see other countries diverging from how they engage about specific Uh topics. We've Uh talked about it on this podcast before when uh, President Obama talks about In Promised Land in his book, his experience of touring Auschwitz and how in Germany, the history of what happened to Jews and the Jewish community is up front and center because you can't really apologize for something that happened that you don't acknowledge, and they've made public apologies and they have statues and all all kinds of uh, both language and symbolism to continue to acknowledge this and what happened in Germany. In the United States, we don't do that. It's let's not talk about slavery. So therefore, everyone can look around clueless as to I'm not sure why redlining is happening and why Shauna's house, which is the exact same as Lisa's house, is valued less than hers let's point back to the beginning and then maybe we can show some correlation. Right, right. But to me, I'm like, the, to me, it screams guilt in many ways. Yeah. 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 I don't think that's the only problem. I think that's one.
0: Yeah. I mean, and guilt can be overwhelming. Right. And shame. Um, you know, it's making me think, isn't there a, a bird like a flamingo or something that buries its head in the sand or maybe it's an ostrich. I can't remember. They, it, they bury I think it's an ostrich. The, yeah. And they, they yeah, think that think therefore people can't see them. Right. If they can't see you, then other uh, animals can't see them or something like that. And I, that's kind of what the imagery that made me think of, you know, by just not talking about slavery, not talking about um, systemic racism and the ways in which our systems still operate with racial bias. Like it's going to yeah. go away. Right. Like yes. if I just don't yes. look at it. Um, and so that's, you know, I just I don't see how that's useful. And one of the things I think that is at play here is this kind of desire or founding principle around individualism so if the United Mm. States was built on individualism then it's very hard to move away from the individual to the system so therefore Mm -hmm. it's a racist person not a racist system so if we talk about race then I might be racist, right? Versus if we talk about race, I might actually uncover some knowledge around the ways in which I am um, complicit, perhaps in this system, but it's not me as a Mm. shitty person. And so, you know, we individualism is like, like pull yourself up by your bootstraps. If you work hard enough, you'll make it. Anyone can make it here. You have power to design your future, right? Like individual Mm -hmm. responsibility. You made a mistake, you need to fix it. And so like, it's much easier to blame an individual than to look at the system because the system is more nebulous and more difficult to fix. So what do you do with that guilt that you're feeling as a white person is mm. you just t- try to turn your back on it rather than take on this bigger issue. Um, right, right, I think right. That, but I don't, I think that's all happening subconsciously, right. For a lot of people, for a lot of white people. Oh,
1: for sure. Yeah, for sure. For sure.
0: Well, and when your entire system, I mean,
1: even for the willing even for people who are willing to talk about race, I find a lot of white individuals who are willing to talk about race still trip over it because again, they haven't talked about it since day one. You know, for for individuals right, right. who, I can't even recall how early we were talking about race in my family or there were messages that said, go here, don't go there, do this, don't do that as a black person. Something as small as, and, and Lisa, this is where, Those micro behaviors show how you learn knowledge in an environment. So, for example, a major micro behavior in the black community is if Lisa, if you and I go into a convenience store, let's say, and we both go and we buy, I don't know, a a bottled water or a Gatorade or what have you. What would you do if you walked into the store just to buy that one simple item? What would I do? Yeah. Yeah. Just tell me the process of what oh. you would do. Step by okay. Step, I would walk in the door.
0: store. I would wander around the aisles looking for it. Um, mm-hmm. If I, once I found it, pick it up, go to the cash desk, wait in line or just pay and leave.
1: Pay And leave. Right. Exactly. As, and uh, yes, anyone should be able to mm-hmm. do that mm-hmm. as a black person. I would do everything that you just mentioned, but as a black person, I would go up, I would, I would pay just like you paid. I would also be very clear to ask for a receipt and a bag to put my purchase in there so that if I, as a Black person, am questioned after I leave whether I stole that item or bought that item, I have both the receipt and the bag to prove, et cetera. Now, you can hit me with all the, you know, save, save trees, with don't print a receipt, and a plastic bag, et cetera. Yes, I believe in all that. But when it comes to me co- being questioned and my livelihood, right, right. I'm going to need the paper and the plastic bag. Those types of micro behaviors about race that have been drilled into African-Americans since their beginning of their existence are little micro behaviors that white people don't have to think about. And it makes white people uncomfortable even talking about that they don't have to think about it
0: right right yeah yeah those
1: behaviors happen day in and day out with black people yeah and and so how do you you know something as simple as um one of my former students you know i had to remind him he's african-american and male i said son never walk around on this campus without your id why because there have been many people that have been trained to think that an African-American male has no place on a college campus, especially a predominantly white one. If you are questioned, you at least have a card to pull out to prove that you're supposed to be here. I am not saying that's right, but I don't have time to come get you out of wherever they're going to put you because a white system assumes that you don't belong here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All those micro behaviors happen on a regular basis. And I would imagine as a white person, that's very uncomfortable to hear that you can navigate the world without having to deal with those micro issues or thinking ahead about those micro behaviors.
0: Yeah. And so then that obviously underscores that as a child, you're learning about that from the get go because your parents are worried about you. Right. And why people are not, um, learning those same things and so then when we see articles in the newspaper about how early is too early to talk about race or to teach race right that question really only Mm. applies to white people because communities Mm. of color families of color are talking about race and teaching their kids about the ways in which um the united states responds to people with darker skin um yes yes uh, you know from there from age three Right. So absolutely. It, and then and then that's not named in those pieces in the newspaper that when we ask those questions, we're not asking it really for every student, every child. Mm-hmm. We're asking it for the benefit of white people. And I that's like right. that's a huge problem. I think that we don't name that. Mm hmm. Mm hmm.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and, you know, I- Part of me goes back to, so going back to your point about the, you know, the ostrich putting their head in the sand. I think that is, (laughs) to me, that's still emblematic of race conversations because no one wants to be the villain in this situation. And if we talk about how race unwound itself or, or made itself clear in the United States, you have to talk about a villain. You have to talk about someone who said, my skin looks this way. And anyone who looks like me gets this access, this privilege, etc. And anyone who does not look like me doesn't get that and must serve my whim. That's a villain. Yeah. And so yeah. if you want to talk about race, you don't want to talk about who were the villains you know, do, I, I don't see people saying, you know, when you do the, um, ancestry, uh, testing and all that stuff, I'm sorry, but I don't see white people running up saying, I'm very proud that my fifth great grandfather was a slave owner. No, they do not want to say that. Of course no, not. No, no, they they don't want to say that. And so, you know, part of it is no one wants to be, the villain, and that goes back to my, you know, kind of comparison of race in the United States and and the Auschwitz conversation, which is again, you cannot appropriately apologize, much less course correct, for problematic race relations if you don't acknowledge who was the villain. Nobody wants to talk yeah. about that. No yeah. one wants to talk about you know, into indigenous populations that were minding their own business. And the next thing you know, you have white folks here bringing illnesses and wiping out an entire tribe. You don't want to talk about that villain. You don't want to talk about that. So, you know, that's what bothers me is that we want to, we want to apologize, but we don't want to articulate what we're apologizing for in this country. We want to course correct, but not talk about the direction that we're going in. That's so sour. It's, it's, we're skipping a step here. Skipping a step.
0: Yeah, but, and the cost correction though is still based on this premise of individuality, right? Like it's not a cost correction to recognize the ways in which this um mm-hmm. like our our history has affected the present day. You know, when we talk about reparations, you hear folks say, but you know, my children or I shouldn't have to pay financially for harm that was caused by people generations ago, right? right? Just because I'm white, and it's not there's so there's no not there's a separation between they did that. doesn't matter whether I'm related to them or not, right? Just because mm-hmm. I share That's a right. racial identity with them doesn't mean that I should pay for their sins. Like right. so there's it's that individual piece. The slave owner was bad, I'm not bad, Not that the system that the slave, owner created you now benefit from in 2021 um right. and i That's don't know right. like i i i feel like this is true in endurance sport as well and all these companies that are trying to do stuff right i shauna and i are talking about this because i think that we have to get it to a place where you have mm-hmm. to have candid conversations about the ways in which race affects how we engage with the world Engage with sport and run our business. Yes,
1: yes, 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 absolutely.
0: And I realize that can be very
1: tough when you're talking about sports that are individual. You know, when I go race, I'm racing for myself, Um, but I'm still functioning in a system that I want to be inclusive and equitable. And so, how do we continue to speak to those organizations and businesses that support individuals in sport, but those organizations still have a Codified voice that still needs to include how race affects everything that it does Um, and and doing that in a way that's not timid, um, but more so directly addresses this is the system. This is the system. What can we do to dismantle the system so that we can build it back the way that we want it? We're not going to do it if we're all ostriches with our heads in the sand. That, that's not going to cut it. Right, um, right. Because, again, we're it kind of reminds me of, of little kids where you're playing peekaboo with them. You know, if I, if I put my hands over my eyes, you no longer exist anymore. You know, and I'm like, yeah, oh, yeah. no, that's not OK. It's not OK for a white person to put their hands over their eyes and say, OK, race doesn't exist anymore. As long as I don't see it and don't talk about it, it goes away. No. Nah. As soon as you uncover your eyes, we're still sitting here waiting on you to engage in this conversation.
0: Yeah. 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 Like, you can't, like, changing a history book, which does happen, and schools teach modified history books, like, doesn't change the fact that there's this really big elephant of history that needs to be discussed mm-hmm. at some time, right? Like, that's right. Yeah. That's so, right. Exactly. I mean, I think that there's a lot here and we've, we've scratched the surface and hopefully this is useful mm. for folks. I mean, as a white person, I certainly still stumble. I certainly still get butterflies in my stomach when talking about it, um, you know, cause I'm unlearning. 20 Mm. odd years of never talking about it and being told that to talk about it is itself racist. Right. Right. So, um, right. You know, I'm still on that journey, so it's not wrong. It's just, we have to be braver. I think white people, Mm. right. And know that it's not, Mm -hmm. it's not that Lisa's a shitty person. Right. Mm -hmm. But I have, I have to unlearn some things and yeah, like you've said, Shauna, it's not comfortable. No,
1: very uncomfortable. So, Hopefully uh, listening to this podcast will help people to continue to pull their heads out of the sand. I know it's not comfortable um, or pleasant all the time, um, but again, it, it would be naive for us not to lift our heads up and look around and see what's really going on around us. So time to learn and unlearn a few things so that we can all move forward as a system that continues to further include folks.
0: Great. Okay. So let's do our segment. Hell yeah.
1: Hell no. Hell no. My favorite. My favorite. So ah, Lisa, let's start with hell nah, Okay. I was minding my own <laughs> business across the couch, relaxing with my sons, watching a movie. And I scroll through and there is a sponsored ad by TEDx. And I'm like, okay, cool. I always stop and see what they're talking about. They're always talking about something innovative, et cetera. What's the cardinal rule to uh, social media? Never read the comments. Yeah. Yep. I, I, I shouldn't have done that. I, I would have never known this was going on had I not read the comments. Um, there is a TEDx conference for women in 2020, 2021, excuse me, that uh, the theme is what now? Meaning, you know, what are we going to do next? Um, and and I thought what, it was so interesting because I'm thinking to myself, TEDx has always been very representative. They've yeah. always tried to yeah. lift diverse voices and diverse perspectives. And it's kind of this, you know, wonderful cadre. I mean, for those of us that are religious, I'm like, oh, this has got to be what heaven is like, where everyone's voices are heard equitably. You get to be that person that brings up the idea that's not shunned, but it's embraced, et cetera. Girl, when I look I read the comment. That was the first mistake Shauna made. There was a comment that said, oh my God, this is a conference about women and equity, yet the price of this ticket is ridiculous. And so I probed around a little bit to see what the price of the ticket was.
0: Oh gosh. I've been
1: going to conferences now for over 25 years and have never paid $3,000 for registration. Okay. Registration. And what made me really laugh about it? Let's talk about how exclusive this is. It wasn't three thousand dollars registration. It was a three thousand dollars application, which to me, oh. yeah, yeah. It it signifies there's a bar that needs to be jumped of some sort. So three thousand dollar wow. ticket. It should not be missed for a, you know for equitable women's future, et cetera. And what you get for that, supposedly attendance, online networking. You get a conference video archive, et cetera. Now, that is your application to this event. That does not include how the heck you're gonna get to Palm Springs. How are you gonna pay for a hotel, which we surmise is about $300 to $400 a night after doing a little bit of research. And then on top of that, you have two options. You can either do the, the low cost of three grand or become a donor for 5k. Now, Lisa, I don't know about you, but from last I heard anything under, I think it's under 50 million. If you're under $50 million in revenue as a, an entrepreneur, you're still considered a small business. Really? I I it, Which blew my mind. And I wow. still know people, and I still know people who would not be able to afford this type of event. Because by the time you have three grand, maybe another, I don't know, th- uh, another 1500 for a hotel, you haven't flown there yet, depending on where you're coming from. I'm not sure I know of anyone who would be able to afford this at this point in their their business journey. Yeah. So no, hell no nah to TEDx, shame on you. I adore you in many other areas, but this one, you, you really missed the mark for me. So Lisa, yeah. look, unless you've got
0: a money tree out back, no, nah, that's not happening. Yeah, that's unbelievable. And then just to, to say it's about women's equity when, like, the vast majority of women will not be able to go, right? Because it's so prohibitive the exactly. price. Exactly. Like, that's unbelievable to me.
1: Exactly. Um, exactly.
0: Yeah. Talk about class, right? And socioeconomic status there in terms of who has who value in this conversation mm-hmm. and who doesn't.
1: Exactly. Um, wow. Exactly. Well,
0: okay. Shame, yeah. on you, Shame on you, TEDx women. Shame on you. So from that pretty awful example to a hell yeah. So many of you have probably seen the news. Um, It came out a few weeks ago, but the US State Department is now allowing folks to choose their gender on their um passport so even if your gender identity does not match the sex that you were assigned at birth you can choose an m or an f based on your gender identity so that's very inclusive of the trans community it is of course still a gender binary with the m and the f but it sounds like the u.s state department has made its intent clear that in 2022 it does want to also add a non-binary category x So whether or not that will materialize, I'm not sure, but this is a pretty big step for a federal government entity on a document that gets you to travel across the world to enable folks to be able to list the identity, um, their identity that is meaningful and correct for them versus relying on other documents. So. You know, Absolutely. federal, anyone who works in the federal government and knows about administration and um hoops, you have to jump through and forms and stuff. The fact that this is coming down is pretty mm-hmm. monumental, I think. And one step closer to being more inclusive of the trans and non-binary community here in the United States. Absolutely. And from what I've heard, Lisa, I would need to go
1: back and look at the list. But I think there are already 10 countries that have a... Uh, a gender neutral marker, if you will. Um, so Canada, and I, I'm not going to even try to remember the others, but I know Canada was on the list. And so, uh, there's at least 10 others. And so I'm glad that we're joining the ranks, uh, and staying on top of this because, um, many states have done this with their driver's licenses, but just have. one yep. more thing that really allows people to feel comfortable with travel without, um, feeling this unnecessary sense of attention on them, um, when they're trying to travel. So I'm really, really pleased about this huge, uh, change and it gets us up to speed with other countries that are doing better. So I'm, I'm really pleased with this one.
0: All right. Well, that wraps up our show this week. Thanks everyone for listening. Remember, please reach out to us if you have your hell yes or your hell no's and any (laughs) other interesting things you hear or want us to talk about. The Unphased Podcast and all things Feisty Triathlon are grateful to be supported by Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker cuts through the noise of diet and wellness trends by analyzing your blood, DNA, and lifestyle to provide you a personalized, science backed, trackable action plan on how to live, age, and perform better. Inside Tracker is a simpler, cheaper, and more convenient option than traditional blood tests, and their test includes biomarkers that are key to performance that you don't get from the traditional option. What we love about them, they don't just give you data, they provide you with nutrition and lifestyle tips to take action. Inside Tracker is offering 25% off their entire store to the Feisty Triathlon community. To claim your offer, go to insidetracker.com slash feistytriathlon. Unfazed, a podcast produced by Live Feisty Media and supported by the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit. Edited and produced by the fabulous Lindsay Glassford. Email us at info at unfazedpodcast.com and find us on social at try to defy, at Dr. Gold Speaks, or at Outspoken Women in Try. I'm Lisa. I'm Shauna. Thanks for listening. Stay unfazed, folks. See you next time.